welcome to this week's episode of Macabre for Mortals. I hope you're all having a great week wherever you are in the world. I hope you all enjoyed the last episode giving the overview of parole and what it entails in a few different countries. I do know that parole is quite a contentious subject at the moment where I'm living in Australia, which I will touch on at the end of this episode to see if there are any similarities that can be drawn between the cases. I know everyone has their own take on parole and I would love to hear what you think of parole in your country and whether you think it is effective or not and what things that you think that could actually be improved on. Okay, so on to today's episode. This, as you can see from the title, is the case of Sarah Payne. Sarah was born on the 13th of October 1991 in Walton on Thames in Surrey, England. She was born to parents Sarah, without a H, and Michael Payne, and she eventually would go on to have four siblings. From a child growing up in this period, I was born in 1988, so only three years before Sarah, I can actually remember the picture of Sarah that was throughout our news. A little girl who looks younger than her age in a red and white check school shirt with a bright red jumper over the top. Sarah's little fringe parts at the front of her forehead a little and she's smiling through to the apples of her cheeks. Looking at this photo now brings a lump in my throat as it could easily be my son in his school photo and it makes chills run through my body. As in all my true crime cases, I want to give you a background of where Sarah grew up so you can have the scene sort of set in your mind. Walton-on-Thames is a market town on the south bank of the Thames in Elbridge Borough of Surrey in England. The town itself consists mainly of affluent suburban streets with a historic town centre of Celtic origin. It is one of the largest towns in the Elbridge Borough alongside Weybridge. And according to the 2011 census, the town has a population of 22,834 and is around 15 miles from central London and has a huge or wide range of transport links. One of the beautiful things about the UK is the public transport. I used to complain about it, but then since moving to Australia, I would never complain about it again a day in my life. The name Walton is an Anglo-Saxon in origin, and it is conjugate with the common phonetic combination meaning Britain's settlement, literally Welsh town, wheel as in tun. Before the Romans and the Saxons were present, a Celtic settlement was here. The most common Old English word for Celtic inhabitants was Willas, originally meaning foreigners or strangers. William Camden identified Conway Stakes or Sale Walton as the place where Julius Caesar forded the River Thames on his second invasion of Britain, which Stakes the Venerable Bede spoke of remaining in his time. A fisherman removed several stakes throughout thigh width and six feet and made wood that was black and hard enough to turn an axe, as shod with iron. He sold these to John Montague, the fifth Earl of Sandwich, 
who used to come to the neighbouring Shepparton Bank to fish for half a guinea apiece. Enbridge Museum requires definitive evidence of these stakes. The evidence at present is limited to pre-20th century secondary sources that conflict to this detail. I apologise over the barking in the background. I am babysitting two dash hands. Walton lay within the Anglo-Saxon quasi-administrative district, Elmridge 100, in the Shire, later county of Surrey. And Walton actually appears in the Doomsday Book of 1086 as Waltonor. The settlement was held jointly as overlords in the feudal system by Edward de Salisbury and Richard de Tombridge. As its doomsday assets were six hides, one church, two mills, one fishery, 14 ploughs, 40 acres of meadow and supported 50 hogs. It rendered £28. The nucleus village is north, while later development took place in the southern manors on all sides of the railway station. About half of the land was south of the southwestern main line. This is included from west to east. Walton Heath, Berwyn Manor or Hersham Manor, and these together became the civil parish of Hersham in the 19th century. St Mary's Parish Church has some of the Saxon material and architectural structure of the 12th century with later additions. The square flint tower supported by a 19th century brick buttress has a working ring of eight bells, the oldest bearing the date 1606. In the North Isle is a large monument, 1755 by the French Rocco sculptor and busmaker Rubelac to Richard Boyle, the second Viscount Shannon, commander in chief in Ireland, who lived in the former manor and house of Ashley Park in the parish. This was demolished and its many acres subdivided in 1920. Also in the North Isle is a brass to John Selwyn of 1587, keeper of Oatlands Park, with figures of himself, his wife, and 11 children. An unusual relic kept in the church is a copy of the Scald's Briggle present, presented to the parish in 17th century, which is a method in Jerome K. Jerome's classic Three Men in a Boat. The Royal Palace of Oatlands was built by Henry VIII in 1538 and was a mile upstream to the west. John Bradshaw lived in the Tudor Manor House in 17th century and he presided at Charles I's trial under the Enclosure Act of 1800. At this time there were enclosed 3,117 acres or 12.6 kilometres square of Walton Manors, which included the holdings at Chestery. Sarah Payne, who lived in Hersham, Missouri, disappeared on the evening of the 1st of July 2000 from a cornfield near the house and home of her grandfather, Terence Payne, and his second wife, Leslie. Sarah had been playing with her two brothers, aged 13 and 11 at the time, and her younger sister, aged 5, when she disappeared. A police search of the local area commenced and quickly transformed into a nationwide search and national news story with the members of the Payne family 
mostly her parents, Michael and Sarah, making numerous television and newspaper appeals for her safe return. On the evening of the 2nd of July 2000, officers from Sussex Police first visited Roy Whiting at his seafront flat in Littlehampton as part of their inquiries to the Sarah Payne's disappearance. A number of other suspects, particularly convicted sex offenders, were also questioned and at least one other person was arrested. Police officers and numerous volunteers scoured the area of Littlehampton for clues to Sarah's disappearance and her family made daily appeals on national television news for help in finding Sarah. On the 10th of July, police announced that they had received information regarding the sighting of a girl who matched Sarah's description at Knutsford Services on the M6 motorway in Cheshire on the morning after her disappearance. Three days later, Michael and Sarah Payne were warned by police to prepare for the worst explaining that the emphasis of their inquiries had shifted and that was a possibility that their daughter might not be found safe and well. 17 days after she first went missing, a body was found in the field near Pulborough, some 15 miles or 24 kilometres from Kingston Gorse, where Sarah had disappeared. The next day, Sussex police confirmed that the body had been identified as that of Sarah Payne and the murder investigation commenced. Roy Waiting, as I mentioned earlier, was first questioned about the disappearance of Sarah Payne, which had taken place within about five miles or eight kilometers of his Littlehampton seafront flat, some 24 hours after she went missing. Whitting was routinely questioned as he was known to local police as a convicted sex offender. Police first visited Whitting's flat on the afternoon of the 2nd of July 2000, but he was not there. The police returned that evening and questioned Whitting for over an hour before leaving. Soon after questioning, Whitting walked to his van but was stopped by undercover police and arrested. Whitting spent two days in custody, but there was no evidence to press any charges, and Whitting was released on bail. Police had found a receipt for fuel from Buck Barn Garage on the A40 on the A24, not far from Coolham, where one of Sarah's shoes was actually found. This contradicted his alibi of being at a fun fair in Hove at 5:30 p.m. and then returning to his flat by 9:30 p.m. on the night that Sarah had disappeared. After this initial arrest, Whitting did not return to his Littlehampton flat. He went to live with his father in Crawley. Roy Whitting was born in Horsham, West Sussex on the 26th of January 1959 and he grew up in the town as one of six to Pamela and Charles Whitting who divorced during the 1970s. He had five siblings but three of them died in infancy his surviving siblings were an older brother and a younger sister. He left Ifield Community College in 1975 with no academic qualifications and over the next few years found employment in several jobs including working as a delivery man for the local cooperative store and late work, later working as a car mechanic and a paint sprayer at a local garage.
1986, he married Linda Booker and they separated the following year just before the birth of their son and were divorced in 1990. He also had an illegitimate daughter born around 1990 with a woman who later spoke to the media about the relationship with Roy Whitting but asked to remain anonymous. On the 4th of March 1995, Roy Whiting abducted and sexually assaulted an eight-year-old girl in the Langley Green district of Crawley. He was arrested a few weeks later after a man who knew Roy Whitting came forward after hearing that the abductor's car had been a red Ford Sierra with a Bart Simpson sticker on one of its windows, identical to the vehicle that Whitting had just sold. On the 23rd of June that year, he admitted the charges of abduction and indecent assault and was sentenced to just four years in prison. The maximum sentence for this crime is life imprisonment. However, he received a lesser sentence as a credit for admitting to the crime and sparing his victim the ordeal of having to give evidence in court had the case reached a trial. I'm sorry, but that just seems completely ridiculous to me that you can go from four years to life imprisonment and it's just because he said, oh, yes, I did it. To support my feelings on this, a psychiatrist who actually assessed Roy Whitting after his conviction when he got admitted into prison said that he was likely to reoffend once he was released and he could possibly kill his next victim. If a psychiatrist who has evaluated someone comes with such a specific evaluation, shouldn't the legal system take that into consideration? That's something that I feel very passionate about because there's not many people who you can make such a solid conviction on like that, that you can make such a solid assessment. And to make that solid assessment, he must have said some really unnerving things. However, Roy Whitting was released from prison on parole in November 1997 after just serving over half of his four-year sentence and was one of the first people in Britain to go on the newly launched sex offenders register. He was scheduled to be released from prison in June of that year, so a bit earlier, but had to serve an additional five months in prison because he refused to take part in a rehabilitation program for convicted sex offenders. So for abducting and sexually assaulting an eight-year-old girl, he served just a little over two years. And then he was released on parole. I think that's absolutely disgusting because that little eight-year-old girl has basically had a life sentence for the rest of her life. And the fact that he refused to go into that rehabilitation program, I, I don't think he should have been released on parole. And especially then adding on top of that, the psychiatrist's evaluation, it would, this was like a perfect storm. This is one of those cases which I think parole should not have been granted. 
Roy Whitting, knowing that he would not be welcomed back into Crawley, moved some 25 miles or 40 kilometres away to Little Hampton on the West Sussex coast, where he rented a flat in St Augustine Road. Two years later, he moved into another flat on the same road. On the 2nd of July 2000, officers from Sussex Police visited his flat making inquiries into the disappearance of Sarah. On the 20th of July, three days after Sarah's body was found, a shoe was recovered from the roadside on the village of Coolham, three miles from Polborough, and identified as one of Sarah's. On the 23rd of July 2000, Roy Whitting stole a Vauxhall Nova in Crawley and was pursued by police at speeds of up to 70 miles per hour or 110 kilometers per hour before crashing into a parked vehicle. Whitting was arrested on charge of dangerous driving and he, he was remanded in custody until the 27th of September 2000 when he admitted to taking the car and driving dangerously and was jailed for 22 months. After Whitting began his jail term for the car theft and dangerous driving, detectives carried out forensic tests on his 1988 white Fiat Ducanto van, which he had bought on the 23rd of June 2000. On the 6th of February 2001, following the police inquiry, Roy Whitting was charged with the abduction and murder of Sarah Payne. By the 6th of February, Sussex Police had found enough forensic evidence on items found in the Fiat van to charge Whitting and he appeared at the Lewis Crown Court charged with abduction and murder. He denied the charges and was remanded in custody to await trial and he was still serving his sentence for the motoring offences at the time. The murder charge meant that he was not released from prison for the motoring offences during the summer of 2001. Yet again, he was going to be getting out on early parole. I just think you can see these red flags firing up. So I think the detectives did the right thing to charge him with the murder and then he was held in reprimand. Roy Whiting's trial began on the 14th of November 2001. If you think about it, this is well over the time that Sarah's family have had to deal with the missing of their daughter. And now they're going through the trial a whole it's 16 months after she went missing. The jury heard from several witnesses. And the key witness included Sarah Payne's oldest brother, Lee, who had seen a scruffy looking man with yellowish teeth drive a white van past the field where he and his siblings had been playing at the time that she vanished. A female motorist had found a shoe identified as belonging to Sarah Payne in the country lane at the roadside of Coolham, several miles from where her body was found. And forensic scientists had found fibres from Whitting's van on Sarah's shoe. The damning piece of evidence was a strand of blonde hair on a t-shirt found in Roy Whitting's van. The forensic experts who made this discovery said that the DNA test results meant that there was one in a billion chance of it belonging to anyone other than Sarah Payne. 
Two other motorists also reported spotting a white van near to the location where Sarah's body was eventually found at around 10pm on the 1st of July 2000, some two hours after she was last seen alive. One motorist reported seeing a vehicle matching the description of Roy Whiting's van on the roadside track, and another reported seeing a white van pulling out of the same track onto the A29. As I said, Sarah Payne's older brother, Lee, gave a description of the driver of the white van, which resembled waiting and an item of clothing that was recovered from their van at the first arrest. Although Lee initially failed to pick Whitting out of an ID parade. A colleague of Roy Whitting also informed the jury that Whitting had appeared cleaner and smarter than usual when he saw him shortly before his initial arrest on the 2nd of July 2000. An indication that he had washed in order to destroy any forensic evidence. Also, Sarah Payne's older brother Lee reported seeing the van near the scene of the abduction with its rear wheels spinning. And Whitting's defence argued that it couldn't have been the Fiat Ducanto, which was a front-wheel drive. I don't think it's fair to put Sarah's older brother, Lee, to pick out an ID parade. People can change their appearance, and to a child, a 13-year-old child, this can look so much different. I did a lot of eyewitness testimony research when I was doing my degree and unfortunately no it isn't reliable but it's because our brains have so much to remember all your senses come into your memory and unless you're looking for something specific you just pick out little details and then if someone looks completely different and you've only seen them in a fleeting drive-by where someone's in a car you can't see properly you can only see little things so I think Lee did really well during the investigation 20 forensic experts were employed during the whole inquiry from a variety of fields including entomology pathology geology archaeology environmenting profiling and an oil and lubricant analysis. In total, 500 items were submitted for forensic testing and it has been estimated that the cost of the investigation involved an 1,000 personnel and cost more than £3 million. However, all of that was worth it because of the 12th of December 2001, Roy Whitting was convicted of the abduction and murder of Sarah Payne and was sentenced to life imprisonment with the recommendation that he will never be released. The trial judge, Mr Justice Curtis, said that it was a rare case in which life should mean life. After Whitting was convicted, it was revealed that he was already a convicted sex offender 
This proved correct and the Paynes family believed that Sarah had been killed by a child sex offender who had already committed similar offences, which had already led them to cooperating with a media campaign for public access to the sex offenders register as well as tighter controls on sex offenders who had been released from custody. This campaign had started within days of Sarah Payne's body being found and several months before Whitting had even been charged. Whitting's previous conviction had until then been kept from the jury as the request of the police who felt that if they heard the details of his previous conviction and he had been found guilty, it would allow him to claim that he had been convicted on the basis of an earlier offence rather than to the one to which he was being tried paving the way for a potential successful appeal. There were renewed calls for the government to allow control public access to the sex offenders register. This became the campaign for what is known as Sarah's Law, after the introduction of Megan's Law in the United States following a similar case several years earlier. I'll touch on this a little bit later. On the 24th of November 2002, Home Secretary at the time, David Blunkett, ordered that Roy Whitting must serve a minimum of 50 years in prison, and this made him ineligible for parole until 2051, meaning that he would have to live to at least 92 before parole would be considered. This was, in effect, an agreement with the trial judge's recommendation of a whole life tariff. Within 48 hours of the rule being made, the law lords and the European Court of Human Rights had ruled in favour of another convicted murderer, Anthony Anderson, who was challenging the rights of the politicians to decide on how long murderer must spend in prison before considered for parole. In the June of 2004, it was reported in the media that Roy Whitting would be applying to the Court of Appeal for a reduction in his 50-year minimum sentence. And on the 9th of June in 2010, Roy Whitting's appeal resulted in his 50-year jail term being reduced by 10 years by a higher judge. Whitting's lawyer argued that a 50-year tariff opposed just before the power of the Home Secretaries to determine how long prisoners sentenced to life should be served laps was politically motivated. The decision was also made at a time where the government was under fire from the public and media over firefighter strikes. Mr Justice Simon said that the 2010 sentencing guidelines, Whitting may have received a whole life tariff but apparently arrived at the 40-year term by retroactively applying guidelines from the time of the original sentencing. Whitting is now serving a a 40-year minimum term which is set to keep him in prison until at least 2041 when he will be 82. Sarah Payne's mother, Sarah, was present and said she was disappointed by the decision and said that life should mean life. In this case, I think this is true as I think Roy Whitting has already been given a chance of early parole, of something that should not have been given early parole, and I think that he has actually forfeited this right. He has ruined an eight-year-old girl's life by when he abducted and sexually assaulted her in the 1994 case. And then he, when he abducted Sarah in 2000, she was eight years old and he sexually assaulted her and murdered her. And I think that's showing a pattern of behavior 
he's ruined obviously her life she doesn't even have a life anymore and he has ruined her whole family's life so in this case I do believe that life should mean life Now I'm just going to go into the details of the aftermath of this case. So as I mentioned earlier, there is something that came out of this called Sarah's Law. The campaign for Sarah's Law was spearheaded by the News of the World newspaper and began in the July of 2000 in response to the murder of Sarah Payne. Sarah Payne's parents backed up the campaign as they were sure that a sex offender had been responsible for their daughter's death. Their belief was proven correct 17 months later when Roy Whitting was found guilty of killing Sarah Payne and it was relieved that he already had the conviction for abducting and indecently assaulting an eight-year-old girl. The aim of the campaign was for the government to allow controlled access to the sex offender registry so parents with young children could know if a child sex offender was living in the area. Sarah Payne's mother has always insisted that such a law would have saved her daughter's life. A modified scheme where parents can inquire about a named individual with regular access to their children was introduced in a four pilot areas of England and Wales in September of 2008. And in August 2010, the Home Office announced that after proving successful, the Child Sex Offender Disclosure Scheme would be extended to cover the whole of England and Wales by the spring of 2011. Since the murder of her daughter Sarah in the July of 2000, her mother Sarah has campaigned for parents to be given to the right to know if the convicted child sex offender is living in their community. So in 2008, eight years after the start of the campaign, a pilot scheme was introduced, as I said, by four British police forces. The success of this scheme was reported to the Home Office and the figures to have protected over 60 children during this pilot and was extended across England and Wales in 2011, protecting more than 200 children in its first year. In 2004, Sarah published a book called Sarah Payne, A Mother's Story, which centred on her daughter's murder, the tragedy's effect on the family and her campaign for Sarah's law, as well as an opening chapter which detailed her life and the 15 years preceding the murder. Payne has continued denied accusations that she financially profited from her daughter's death through the book sales and her regular media appearances. I don't think anybody should throw that accusation at a mother who's lost a child. She has definitely done an awful lot to try and bring the child sex offender profile so people can see it. As of 2019, Sarah is still involved in advocating for children's rights through the Phoenix Post organisation, which she co-founded on the 31st of December 2008. She was also made an MBE in the New Year's Honours list in 2008, and in June, January 2009, she was appointed the Victim's Champion by the Justice Secretary, Jack Straw. And in the 9th of June 2012, she was granted an honorary doctorate by the Open University at a graduation ceremony held at Eli she is currently a trustee of the Phoenix Trust, an organisation that has existed victims of sexual or child abuse and combated such abuse. 
Unfortunately, like many other stories of crime, there is always more than one victim. On the 27th of October 2014, Michael Payne, Sarah's father, was found dead at the age of 46 at his home in Maidstone in Kent. He and Sarah had separated for 11 years by then, despite the media reports in the early stages of their separation that they had hoping to get back together at some stage. The death of Michael Payne was not treated as suspicious and was believed to be caused by alcoholism-related illness. It was believed that he died several days before his body was found. Their whole family has been a victim. They separated because they had this pain between them that neither of them could heal and he was self-medicating himself with alcohol and sadly died at such a young age as well. However, child murderers and paedophiles do not have a good time in prison. They are classed as the lowest in rank, and this is certainly true for Roy Whitting. On the 4th of August 2002, Whitting was attacked with a razor by another prisoner while fetching hot water at Wakefield Prison. The convicted killer, Ricky Trigus, serving life imprisonment with a 25-year recommendation for minimum for the 1997 murder of a disabled man in Cornwall, was found guilty of carrying out the slashing, which left Whitting with a six-inch scar on his right cheek. Tragus received a six-year sentence to run concurrently along his life sentence after being found guilty of wounding charge relating to the attack on Whitting. His new sentence, now notwithstanding, Tragus would not have to serve any extra time in prison if the parole board were eventually to decide that he was eligible to be freed on a life licence. In June 2011, Whitting was again attacked in prison, this time stabbed in the eye. No charge was pressed by Whitting and consequently the police investigation into the assault was not undertaken. Whitting, the injuries were not life-threatening. A third attack on Whitting took place on the 8th of November 2018, where he was stabbed by two other prisoners in his cell at HMP Wakefield. He was taken to hospital for treatment but returned to prison shortly after in a stable condition. This is a case, what I consider to be a crime that should not have happened and one that could have been easily prevented and prevented by the justice system. Because Sarah did nothing wrong. She was a little eight-year-old girl. Although I don't think it should matter what age she was. But Whitting was given the smallest sentence that he could possibly have. And even when the evaluation by the psychiatrist on his intake said that he would re-offend, he was still given parole. He should not have been offered parole. If he had been given the life sentence on his first offence, Sarah would still be alive today. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, I was going to relay a story to you of why parole is currently in Australian news. On the 26th of January this year, a young couple and their dog were hit by a car and sadly killed. 
the young woman had just announced to her family that she was expecting her first baby. The driver of the vehicle was a 17-year-old young man who had stole the car, was driving it without a license, and happened to have just been released on parole. This young man has had a history of offences, yet he had still been released on good behaviour to re-offend in the manner which he has always carried out his crimes. He has got a lot, a long list of car theft, driving without a licence, those sort of crimes. But this time, while carrying out that crime, he has killed two people really three people. I understand that we have to wonder why a 17 year old has such a long, for want of a better word, rapper sheet. And what type of upbringing he has had to have this unstableness happen. However, some young people and some offenders do actually have good upbringings and there is nothing there to give an excuse to this. However, this discussion of how he's been brought up, whether he's just become a victim of the justice system, will not really bring comfort to the young couple's family. We are not getting to know the offender's name as in Australian law he is still considered a juvenile. However, I believe he has actually carried out a very adult crime and The car theft is something that he has done many times before, but has been lucky to have not injured anyone. And really, since he has been a repeat offender and been convicted of automobile crimes before, he should not have been granted parole for good behaviour, as he has shown that he has been a re-offender. I understand that prison and parole and all of that is so that people can be rehabilitated, but not in the quick turnaround for this young man. It was quite a quick flip, as if prison systems like, oh, he's none of our business, we can't deal with that right now, we'll just put him on parole. And that is the kind of attitude which I just do not agree with, because if he had not been granted parole, that young couple would still be alive now. They would be awaiting the arrival of their first child. A lot of people could argue, okay, well, this 17-year-old has now lost his life because now he is up for a murder charge. But this family have just lost three members due to this young person's actions. A young person can be more easily rehabilitated because their mind is still at that malleable stage. 17 years old, definitely. I don't feel like I truly knew myself until I was at least 26, 27, and I had my child then, and that is when I knew myself deep down. This family is now grieving for a loss of a whole branch of their family. This is obviously something that I do feel very strongly about. I 
believe in the rehabilitation of people and I believe it is possible for some people but I do not believe it is possible for all people. Just like if you are given a tablet to try and help you with a medical issue. That tablet will help some people but it won't help all people. Where a different tablet will help another group of people. And I think this is how we need to view the scope of prison rehabilitation parole. We need to see it as it will help some people. There needs to be a way around this to help the people who can be rehabilitated and the people who can't. I'm sorry, but you're going to reoffend. I know it's very much like the film The Minority Report, like where they have the people who have the potential to commit the crime, but then they may not commit the crime. And you're putting people away before they've actually done the crime. And I understand that that, that could not be possible. But like in the case of Roy Whitting that we've just heard with Sarah Payne, he should not have been given parole. The psychiatrist was saying he was going to re-offend and possibly kill, which he did. I'm sorry, but if I had seen I have an intake of this 17-year-old about all the different automobile crimes, I'd say, no, he is going to re-offend. He needs to be on some strict rehabilitation for at least three years before he should get another evaluation. Anyway, I'll get off my safe box now. Next week, I will be covering a different side of parole and one that will hopefully uplift me, the success stories of parole. I found such a brilliant page from the state of Georgia, which I think has done such an amazing job at publicizing the success of some of their parolees. And I think I even need to be reminded at times that there is still, as I said last episode, a 38% chance of success of parole. And in the world of chance, that is still a pretty good odd. And when I read these stories next week, you'll be able to hear that these people of success, how well they've actually done. And I do think that they need to be praised and shown, look, you can be rehabilitated and this is what you can do with your life afterwards. I think the week after that, I'm going to do... Um, I think a discussion about why we should still have parole because I do believe that in some cases as I will read next week it is a good thing but in others it isn't so I think that one will be like the argument for or against parole just to round off the month. My sources this week were a man guilty of Sarah Killer attack from the BBC News of the 25th of June 2004 Police confirmed body is Sarah Payne's This Britain, The Independent of the 17th of July 2000. Good Peter of the 12th of December 2001, Snatched on Summer of the Evening. That was done by BBC. Stuart Payne, um, the 13th of December 2001, How Roy Wheating Was Freed to Kill in the Daily Telegraph. And... A Hidden History of Sex Assaults, The Scotsman, on the 13th of December 2001. 
Also, I just got a little bit of background of Sarah and her mother and Roy Wheating from Wikipedia as well. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. If you have any information that you'd like me to cover in future episodes, or if you have any comments about this case that I've discussed today, or the information that I gave last week on parole, then please just drop me an email at macabreformortals at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, then please consider subscribing for more content. And if you have a chance, please follow us on Instagram by searching Macabre for Mortals. I hope you all have a stellar week and I will see you in the next episode.